Hello, how are you? Welcome to episode 80 of the Planet LP podcast. I'm Tenas Regadu. As we do every month on the Planet LP podcast, we join forces with Keith Creighton and Popdose to feature new releases on the Popdose New Music Report. Last month was an avalanche of music. This month, more of a trickle, but there are some notable releases that deserve your attention. We'll also talk about some reissues and even tackle songs from Prince's vault of music that his estate is putting out there into the world. Follow or like Planet LP on social media. We're on threads, groupie, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I have a few standalone Planet LP videos on YouTube, too. You can subscribe at Ted Asurgadu. And you can always email me at ted at planetlp.com. Subscribe to Planet LP on all the usual podcasting apps, or just go to planetlp.com and have a listen there. Time now to dive into some new music. Well, hi, Keith. Nice to have you back on the pod. Ted, how goes the summer? It's been a little bit warm here in the Bay Area, but uh, we're going to get some relief. So overall, pretty good. Pretty good, I should say. How about you? Yep. Yeah, you know, doing really well up here in Seattle, and I think the whole country has Barbie fever. So we're going to be talking about the Barbie soundtrack later on. We are indeed. Keith writes for Popdose, as I said, and every month he visits Planet LP with a trove of new music recommendations for you. I was thinking about last month's report and how much was being released. It was kind of overwhelming for me, at least. I think in a way, having fewer new releases means we, as music listeners, can focus our attention, or at least, well, I feel I can. I don't know about you. Maybe you're more of a person like, just give me as much as I can handle. But I feel like that this is kind of a nicer cycle of releases that it would a little less of a fire hose as it were. Yeah. Cause like in addition to the music, you know, we get deluged with so much content that I'm actually, I know this is going to be unpopular, but I'm enjoying the writer strike and the SAG strike because it's given me a chance to catch up on a lot of the content that I've subscribed to from all these streamers that I've never had a chance to get because you figure there's going to be a long delay in new content coming down the road. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of enjoying it. I'm going to catch up on some shows and stuff like that. But I noticed last month, so many releases came out that even though I bought a lot of them, I didn't have time to listen to anything because every I always had to listen to the next thing and listen to the next right. thing. So right. I'm enjoying this lull. You know, there's some nice new releases coming out in August and September, but it's going to give me a chance to catch up on a lot of the best of so far this year. I just feel like every month I go either on my streaming services and I click on what's new and I look and I'm all like, well, that looks interesting. And I start saving things. And then I look at my queue and I'm all like, I'm never going to get to this. This is way too much music. I'll be able to sample a little bit, but not to the point where I can really sit down and listen to a record. Like the previous episode, John Young and I were challenged by our Gen Z kids to really sit down and listen intensely to, to a record. I got Taylor Swift's Speak Now, the Taylor's version, and he got Madison Cunningham's Revealer, which as you know, and I know, was the top of my list of last year, which I thought was a really good album. But those are the sort of things I like to do. I like to just sit and sort of really get into a record. And I feel, I don't feel that pressure to, to get to the next thing like you do too. Yeah. And you bury the lead on your excellent previous podcast. And that is you're putting new music into the world with Heat Pump. (laughs) Which I think everyone needs to go listen to the last podcast so they could hear Ted's amazing 
kind of craft work for the 21st century um, heat pump track. Heat pump, yeah. I do have the music bed, and let me just play a little bit of that. Okay. I love my little heat pump. It keeps me very warm. I love my little heat pump. From dusk to dawn, my little heat pump. It's my only friend. My little heat pump. With me until the end. So one day in the future, heat pump will be out there in the world as soon as I find some time to finish it. Maybe it'll be in a vault somewhere and 25, 30 years, my daughter will release it into the world. Speaking of vaults, we have our friend Prince has, I don't know how much music he has in there. You might know, but it's a lot, right? And his estate's been releasing tracks here and there. So do you know do you know how much music is in Prince's vault? There's a couple of people who do and they're the ones that were kind of like the loyal fans that have been now in charged with kind of cataloging and appreciating everything that's in there. So they know, you know at least more than a thousand fully finished songs. Really? And I've read wow. more than a dozen books on Prince as you know I wrote for ultimateprince.com originally mm-hmm. Diffuser the website we did the 365 days of Prince in 2017, where every single day, me or one of the other writers on staff fully went into a track either from his released catalog or from the vault um, to kind of analyze and get the the whole story, the kind of the talking history of the song. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the tracks we covered have yet to still come out because I have probably a good 40 or 50 full-length CDRs filled with unreleased tracks that have been circulated wildly. And people always ask, well, how did you get these? And as you read the books, you realize when Prince was recording, usually at the end of a session, he would have his engineer dub a couple of cassettes of the day's session, Mm -hmm. and he would hand it out to members of the media or to the band to learn, to get feedback, that kind of stuff. And so those cassettes then started working their way into the bootlegosphere. And you could always tell the quality of a bootleg as to how close to the original source cassette it was. Because some you could tell were copies of copies of copies of copies, and they sound really muddy. But other ones sound as if you're in the studio with them. There's been a lot of these tracks surfacing over the years. And then since Prince passed, the estate has put out a lot of them as expanded editions. So these are the bonus discs, especially most notably on the 1999 and Sign of the Times, which dedicated several discs to fully produced gems, like absolute gems from the vault. Prior to the label kind of signing off where Sony Music is now in charge of most of the estate, Warner Brothers is controlling just film-related Prince albums, like Graffiti Bridge, Under the Cherry Moon, Batman, and Purple Rain. Okay. So those expanded editions will still come from the Warner Brothers, and they have done an exceptional job in putting out those expanded super editions. Sony hasn't done anything to date. You know, Sony is just re-releasing a lot of the kind of more fringe albums and putting those back into print on vinyl and CD, which is great for fans that missed it the first time around. But I'm really excited to see, especially in his genius era, what some of the stuff is still going to come down. Finally, after years, 
the the estate announced at the time for the big prince celebration, which is done in Minneapolis around the time of his birthday in June, that they were going to release some new tracks from the vault. And it's been years since the Sign of the Times release. And so I was really excited for this. And then they put out two tracks. One is called All a Share Together Now. And the other one is another remix of Seven, you know, from Mm -hmm. Seven and E-flat major. And, oh, my God, I was so bummed, you know. And so it's like, this is it. Like, this is the the big thing that they're releasing into the world. And so we're going to talk about these particular tracks and why it's just such a buzzkill in terms of knowing how much great stuff is still in the vault. So let's start with this first song, which has a kind of an awkward title, All a Share Together Now. I was taken by the groove of it. I just love the kind of groove he was laying down there. I felt like this sort of jazz funk vibe was novel in a way in terms of its, its sonic quality. Now, I didn't really get into the lyrics much because, as I've said a couple times already, I'm more of a music guy and then lyrics later. So I didn't dig into the lyrics, but you did. And actually, because you've written so much about Prince, you know the, some details of his life and why the lyrics that are expressed on this on this song don't really match up to his lived experience and what he has said in public. So let's sort of start with lyrically what you had problems with. Yeah. And this isn't going to be a big Prince flame piece, you know, because I've dedicated most of my life to Prince fandom. I -hmm. completely love the music that he's put out. I've dedicated huge shares of, you know, buying everything he's ever put out on vinyl, on cassette, on CD, you know, but the thing is, when you really look at someone's full body of work, you can appreciate where their genius era was, mm-hmm. where they kind of fell short of expectations, where you don't vibe with a particular piece of music. I'm not one of those that views Prince or any artist as a deity, meaning they're immune from criticism. Everything they did was perfect. Everything is above criticism. And then if you do criticize either the artist or the art, that somehow you're sacrilegious. And we see that a lot with everyone from fans of Bob Dylan to Beyonce to the Swifties with Taylor Swift. There's and even Kanye West until he'd made it so hard for (laughs) you to kind of stay on his train. But it used to be if you doubted Kanye West's artistic genius, you just didn't get it. And the fans would come after you. And so I'm not one of those that puts Prince up there on that level. I view him as a complicated person who had genius level musical skills that weren't always fully realized in his life. All a share together now, the way I interpret the lyrics, and we can go through the lyrics a little bit, is a song about reparations. Mm -hmm. Now, that conversation needs to be had. You know, I am a big champion for putting a major reparations package into us political discourse. You know, it's long overdue. It's very needed, but yet Prince isn't the man that should be talking about this. Yes. He's black and a person of color. I view all this as hollow proselytizing because Mm -hmm. here is a man. And then I'm going to go through a little bit of this. A never voted a day in his life and was proud of it. If you're going to, advocate for reparations, you also got to advocate to put the people in the political power that are going to be able to make it happen. 
You know, so back in an infamous interview that you could watch in full on YouTube, you know, Prince said to Tavis Smiley, he said, well, I don't vote. I don't have nothing to do with it. I've got no dog in that race. Hmm. And so Smiley said, well, for, and for those who would cuss me out if I didn't ask you why. And Prince said, the reason is why I'm a, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses and I, we've never voted. That's not to say I don't think President Obama is a very smart individual and he seems like he means well, but prophecy is all we have to go by now, you know, which means he basically absconded from any political responsibility, especially in the power that he had with his public platform to do anything about it. And plus, you know, reparations is about sharing and distributing the wealth, you know, and he made millions in his heyday. And yet when you read all the accounts and all the books with all the interviews of the members of the revolution over the years, Prince was making millions on the Purple Rain tour in in that era, and his band members were still only being paid a few hundred bucks a week. And that includes round-the-clock rehearsals, touring, studio sessions, and all that. And Prince rarely cut band members in on the publishing, despite their overwhelming musical contributions, especially when he died without a will. Mm -hmm. You know, usually your estate goes to your family, and you look at all the musicians, the engineers, the crew that were his family over the years that were with him throughout his life and played a critical part in not only his life and his success, he completely cut them out. And then all of his estate and now the control of the estate went to blood relatives who he had really no relation with during his life. Did they ever say, because you know, you're the you're the person that knows a lot about Prince, why he didn't have a will for all the millions that he made. And I'm sure he had business advisors and people, accountants and things like that, trying to make sure that his accumulated wealth got secured and would be passed down to whoever he wanted to after he passed, that he just just never got around to it or he had a an aversion to it. I don't know if this is something about Jehovah's Witnesses or something or or what, but but I'm, I'm just curious, is there, is there any reason why he never had any kind of will or trust? And this is speculation, so I'm going to fully say this, but after reading lots of books with not only Prince's quotes directly, but also with other members, the way I see it is a will acknowledges you're going to die. Mm. And mm. by putting something in paper, I think what it does is that manifests that you are a human being that is going to eventually die. And not some child of light, soul god that is, you know, working on behalf of the deity. Prince had a chance to save his life. When that plane landed in Moline, Iowa, when he overdosed coming Mm -hmm. home from Atlanta after what turned out to be his final concert, they could have stabilized him and kept him in the hospital and put him in a, a facility that could have kept him alive. And yet he bailed on that against doctor's orders, got back on that plane went back to Minneapolis and within a week he was dead. Right. You know? And so the thing is when you look at his career of singing about God and heaven and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you view life after death as this fantastic, amazing experience, you kind of think maybe he was ready to go to that. You know, maybe he was ready to let go of this life and really go to this, what he imagined would be this fantastic new experience. Hmm. Essentially saying, when God's ready for me, God's going to come and get me. Okay. And God came and got him. That and seems I just to put, make some sense. I mean, the way yeah. you sort of sketch out his view of not only acknowledging death, but maybe 
giving the primacy of his life over to God's will. Like whenever God wills it that I die, I will die. I don't want to leave my last will and testament because that would almost presume that I'm, you know, sort of godlike, even though, of course, he kind of felt himself godlike at times. Uh, And especially the way he kind of laid down the commandments for his band members, like, like Wendy Melvoin. That's an interesting story about what happened with Wendy Melvoin. Prince died an addict. He was addicted to the cocktail that eventually killed him. And yet back in the day, he fined his band members for drinking alcohol in public. And so here's, you know, a quote from Wendy Melvoin of the revolution to the Star Tribune, you know, and it's one of the most fascinating stories you'll ever read in the Prince canon about the Under the Cherry Moon premiere. Do you remember what happened with that? I don't remember. I remember buying the record, but I don't remember the premiere or what transpired. Yeah, Go ahead. They should make an entire movie out of this movie premiere. So essentially what happened was they partnered with MTV mm-hmm. to do a contest, meaning anybody could enter this contest and then Prince would bring the Under the Cherry Moon world premiere to your hometown. Oh. The winner of this MTV contest, because they figured like the, the chances of a major city winner were pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, but unfortunately, the girl that won is in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> you know, Sheridan, North Dakota. And they had to bring the entire Excellent. enterprise, including the the premiere, the red carpet walk, the screening, and then the after show, the concert to, I think it was like a Holiday Inn. The venue was not made for a Prince concert, so I guess mm-hmm. it was just hot as balls. And so Wendy said, that night I had a huge blowout with Prince. I was at the bar having a beer with Joni Mitchell. An interviewer came up to me, and the next day in some paper it said, Wendy from Prince and the Revolution answering blah, 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 while nursing a Budweiser. <laughs> Prince pulls me upstairs and read me out about being an example to kids. I was completely floored. I felt like something else was wrong here. It was not about me drinking a beer. Yeah. And one of the other main contradictions, you know, kind of going back to our thing about Prince and his relationship with God, letting God make all the major choices in his life. Mm -hmm. If you ever want to read the most excruciating thing you will probably ever read in a biography, read the pregnancy section of Maite Garcia's book, who is Prince's first wife, and how they knew the baby was going to be horribly deformed and giving birth, bringing it to term and giving birth was definitely put Maite's life on the line mm-hmm. and Prince mandated that she give birth to that baby, you know, and it is, she goes hour for hour through the excruciating last days of the pregnancy and the two days that the baby stayed alive. It's cruelty on a level you just never thought imaginable. Prince put everything into God's will versus him having any say or making a decision. It just drives me crazy. And so the fact that they put this song out and they haven't put out a song in years from the vault, it just, it kind of riles me up. What were the lyrics that kind of said, you know what? This is really hypocritical. This is like hollow proselytizing. Yeah. Yeah, So he sings wealthy and wise and stronger still, no generation taking more than their fill. So he says, no generation taking more than their fill really riled me up about how he had all that income and didn't share it with anyone in his band. Then he says, the debt of the ones before us must be paid all a share together now. Now, I have a problem, but I'm not, I'm white, so I'm not going to go too far into it. But the fact that he sings all a share together now yeah. in a dialect, which to me seems more minstrel era, and it wasn't the way he talked. 
you know, seems like he was really going out of his way to appeal to a black audience here. Right. And so, you know, then he sings surplus deficit. Let's work together now for the betterment of all brothers and sisters too. He didn't share that really in his life. I know he did some private charitable work that he didn't want any credit for. And that's wonderful. You know, but the fact that he did really little with his platform in life to benefit political causes or social movements for the betterment of everybody just shows that, you know, there's a reason I think he kept this one in the vault. And then here's this, here are these lyrics saying we could make a better world and we need to do it. And here's why. Yeah. You wrote these lyrics. You did the song. Let's look at the record Prince. You underpaid the revolution. This band that was probably, I mean, I mean, New Power Generation was probably better players at some level, but the Revolution was the band that made him the star. Without Wendy and Lisa, and I'm blanking on yeah. the bass player's name. Brown Mark. You know, yeah. his name is Mark Brown. But when you think about it, and this is a very unpopular opinion, but I'm fully entrenched in it. The prince that everybody loves was a band and not a man. Right. You know, everyone right. you just mentioned. Matt Fink on keyboards, but then there's also David Z. And, and then, so, yeah. but also Sheila E, you know, had a major influence on mm-hmm. his career. Mm-hmm. Eric Leeds, who is his trumpet player that did that really iconic, you know, trumpet parts on all of his playing that really unique horn section where you could always tell a Prince horn section versus anything else. And so, but not only was it Eric Leeds, but it was Eric's brother, Alan, who was Prince's touring manager and ran Paisley Park Records for a while. There was Lisa Coleman, his keyboard player, and her brother, David Coleman. It was David Coleman that actually gave Prince the inspiration for the Around the World in the Day era. Really? You know, because that was his song. Yeah. Prince heard that, that. and it completely pivoted his direction. And then the same thing with the Melvoins, Wendy Melvoin and Susanna Melvoin. You know, Susanna was in the family and was Prince's longtime Mm -hmm. relationship partner. Then, then the Jonathan brother. Melvoin, yeah. who was in the um, Smashing Pumpkins, where he sadly passed early from a drug overdose. Jonathan Melvoin was also very critical to Prince's sound in that era. Hmm. And so was Claire Fisher, the guy that did all the string arrangements, even though he and Prince never met in person, and that was by design. Think about all those really unique orchestral patterns in Prince's peak era work. That was all from so Claire like on, Fisher. So like on Purple Rain, like um, Take Me With You that has like some strings on there. That was that guy? That came um, up with that came and then, after that, okay, but, that you know, okay. but actually the, the woman that did the strings on purple rain, you know, was another mm-hmm. gifted musician that was very involved in that era. And so you figure everybody brought something to the creation of the music. And this is once again, this is another one of my, when people say, well, what do you mean? Prince wasn't perfect. I mean, look at the story of kiss, you know, are you mm-hmm. familiar with the story oh, yeah. of how kiss yeah. came together? You know, he threw off, you know, a simple guitar composition then gave it to Maserati you know, Brown Marks band, they orchestrated and arranged it in the way that made Kiss a number one hit. Mm-hmm. And Prince heard it and took it back from them and said, nope, this is mine now. Yeah. And then basically, you know, put his vocals back on it. And that was that number one hit, Prince's last big number one hit. Lots of stories like that. And especially with Wendy and Lisa, who are at the time were in a same-sex relationship, Prince, instead of supporting the LGBT community, the way Madonna and Taylor Swift and lots of other A-list artists do, Prince kind of turned his back on them. Talked about this, you know, in a New Yorker profile, 
He said, same-sex marriage was all about the Democrats' notion that you could do whatever you want. And then he said, God came to earth and saw people sticking it wherever and doing it with whatever, and he just cleared it all out, he told the magazine. He was like, enough. And I think he was talking about the AIDS epidemic. Oh. You know? And so it's just one of those things where he was a man of many contradictions. It doesn't mean... He didn't put out some of the best music to ever be recorded. That is definitely sealed in his legacy. But the fact is, okay, there's so much great more stuff to be mined from the vault, but this clearly isn't it. Well, as they say on that Hulu series, The Bear, yes, chef. I agree with you. You know, everything that you've said, I think, well, one, I didn't know a lot of these nuggets of information i had no idea that i'm a prince fan but not like you i mean you are like deep and you have the receipts to prove it too that you've you've bought a lot of this stuff over the years so it's great to hear about the contradictions of the man but i like what you said prince was in his heyday was a band not a man without that band he wouldn't have had those what they are now those iconic and classic songs because it took all those people to bring the chemistry if you will of the band to, to make that sound without it it would just be like a oh that's an interesting demo you know if it was just you just hearing him in the studio demoing this out so there was that scene in purple rain where he was angry at wendy and lisa for trying to come up with like what ended up being the opening riff of purple rain it seemed very biographical at the time because they were just sort of like, you'll never use our stuff. Never. And then at the end, of course he uses it and he writes this wonderful anthem and people are crying and it's, and even the time is just like, yeah, we can't compete with that. So. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a shame that he didn't apply that to the rest of his career. I think what happened was, and there's lots of documentation in the books that he saw rivalries with his own creations, whether it was the revolution or it was um, the time. You know, mm-hmm. so then he went away to sabotage that, you know, and so 86, you know, two years after the peak of Purple Rain, the revolution falls apart. And there's plenty of books that tell all these amazing stories from that. But it's a shame because especially on the Sign of the Times, super deluxe edition, you can hear Wendy and Lisa's contributions where they take a raw track that Prince gave them and then turns it into something truly spectacular. And then when he jettisons all their contributions and what, you know, the third versions of these songs, like Witness for the Prosecution, it's a perfect example. It's very plain and boring once he gets rid of their contributions, you know? So I always viewed Prince as a prism. By himself, it's a very beautiful piece of glass. Mm-hmm. But when light shines through, you get rainbows. And so to me, the light was the Melvoins, the Coleman, Sheila E., everyone we talked about, including right. engineers Peggy Leonard and Susan Rogers. Yeah, you know? yeah. On the uh, production side, you don't have a good album unless you have really good technical people who know what they're doing. Instead, you have a muddled mess. Like we've gone through some of the Sonics on albums that song-wise, pretty good. But then once they, I don't know who they got to produce this thing or what choices were made on the technical side, it doesn't sound so great. Go, go, Bordello, yeah. There we are. Go, go. <laughs> See, you got to be tongue It's so here. hard to say. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. But while you like the songs, the album gave you a migraine. And we've had this conversation throughout you being on the podcast about how an album can sound, I mean, song-wise, it's, it's pretty good, but production-wise, yeah. it's like bleh. And that's the thing about Prince's music is that when he had all the right elements together and all those people had the contributions and did their jobs and did it well, 
boy, was it magical. But the minute he starts becoming more controlling and saying, yeah. no, you do this, you do that. It just sounds like, eh, it's all right. Yeah. Cause people forget, you know, the genius era was really the second or third album. You know, let's mm-hmm. just give it to 1980s dirty mind at being most charitable 1995's the gold experience. You know, that was really the end of the massive. And there was even some duds between Diamonds and Pearls and the Gold mm-hmm. Experience, like the Come album. I'm not a big fan of the Symbol album, you know, even though there's some really good singles from that. But then after that, there was another 21 years of Prince's career where he was putting out really kind of duds, like you yeah. know, the Slaughterhouse and the Chocolate Invasion and News and, you know, the Rainbow Children. And especially the rave into the joy of fantastic. And the only time that it really, you know, especially like 3121, you know, with like songs like Fury or Planet Earth, which briefly had Wendy and Lisa back in the fold. Those are the only times that reminded us of how good things were during the heyday. It's just a shame, you know, but if he had kind of kept surrounding himself with amazing people that challenged him and opened him up to what was happening in popular culture for decades. You know, it was Wendy and Lisa that turned him on to Joni Mitchell. Because in the heyday, Prince had his own sound. And for the rest of his career, he was chasing trends like hip-hop instead of just blazing his own trail the way he did. And to me, that's where his legacy doesn't really live up to the full potential that he could have had while on this earth. I think we can kind of sum up these vault releases and after his heyday in the title of the second single that was <laughs> that was released. And it's not necessarily seven. It's the E flat major. It just yeah. sort of flattened out. It just, yeah. you know, he really wasn't able to catch that lightning anymore. And seven's a great song. I mean, I enjoyed oh, yeah, it's it. It's a beautiful it was, song. Yeah. yeah. But this this remixed version, as you said, was was not that good. Yeah, because Seven really worked when he multi-tracked his vocals and created that big chorus. And it's this very uplifting, almost church anthem, Mm -hmm. you know, when that chorus hits. And so, and it was beautifully produced and all that. And then they did some lots of like more hip hop funky remixes. And then this one just takes all the joy out of the song. And so they say there's a big announcement coming in August. So maybe on the next podcast, we'll be able to talk about it. And I'm hoping... That it's a you know expanded deluxe edition of the parade or the around the world in a day albums. Those would be really great because especially when you read Dwayne Tudal's books that chronicle every single day in the studio Prince spent in that era. There are so many amazing songs that have yet to be released from that era. So I'm hoping that's what they're going to release, but I'm not confident. You know, if they just release more from this era, mm-hmm. not too excited about it. Okay. And I think that we're going to close the vault door on that. So let's just yeah. close the vault. And we're going to go into a different vault now because sure. Lindsay Parker at Yahoo Music really broke some huge news last month. And that is about ministry. Ministry. Yes. I read through the article. And yeah, it was actually a pretty thorough piece. I was surprised how much she was able to get out of uh, Al Jorgensen. Al's a fascinating man, but here is it Jorgensen or Jorgensen? How does he say it? I think it's Jorgensen. Jorgensen. It might be Jorgensen. I have no idea. You know, it's one of those things where you never vocalize it that much. But 
you know, I'm a huge, huge, huge ministry head. I just thought it was so great in Lindsay's interview that Al was really unaware of how beloved his With Sympathy album is. He explains in detail how he was, you know, at that point, flat ass broke, needed yeah. the money. Yeah. And so when Clive Davis and Arista come along with a big truck of money, he delivered the album they wanted. Very danceable, new wave with a little ripple of darkness in it was selling really well. And that's what they wanted. He wrote some songs, some, a lot of songs were co-writes that he doesn't feel that attached to, but you know, he said it was way too saccharine and sugary for his taste. Mm -hmm. And yet with sympathy has such a hardcore fan base that Al discovered there was a band called with sympathy that does nothing but tour that album and wow. sing those songs huh. to people that go out of their way to check it out. It's one of those things where he's always hated it talks about how much he hates it. And now he's going to revisit with sympathy, the songs that he especially wrote, and he's going to re-record new modern ministry versions of them, which I just think is really huge news. So for those who don't know the ministry of 1983, and then the ministry of the sort of the golden era, how, yeah. do, how would you sum up these two styles? I mean, you kind of said saccharine new wave, but now, the time that you came into ministry and that you became a fan, how would you describe that music? So it's really interesting because the With Sympathy album was kind of wedged into his Wax Tracks era. Mm -hmm. Now, there's an amazing box set that's still readily available called the Tracks Box from all of Al's side projects, like Palehead, Revolting Cox, early ministry stuff. So he was really a pioneer in what's now known as industrial still danceable but very post-punk because it sounded like a lot of machines like you could hear mm -hmm. factory machines and a lot of the rhythms that kind of come up but it's a very so, heavy heavy sound right just very like visceral and it hits you right in your solar plexus just like boom and yeah. sample heavy and really using synthesizers and computer processing to turn samples into something unusual you know rhythmic sounds and stuff like that so front 242 was really kind of like the big pioneers of this. But, you know, when you hear the tracks box, I mean, he was just the same thing like Prince in this, just everything that was coming out of his imagination was just landmark and visceral and exciting. And not a lot of it was commercial, mm -hmm. but it definitely found its home on college radio and in clubs, but he was flat ass broke. And so he then puts out this very polished pop record for Arista. And then I'll never forget where I was. I was in college when the follow-up to With Sympathy finally came out, and that was mm -hmm. Twitch. Twitch was a dramatic shift, really kind of, because at that point I hadn't heard much of the Wax Track singles and all that. So Twitch was a very, very aggressive record. And then when The Land of Rape and Honey came out, it was like, oh my God, put industrial into like a heavy speed metal kind of vortex and mesh it all together. Because unlike Metallica, you could still dance to it. And so then, you know, he had his kind of his heyday era with the land of rape and honey, a mind is a terrible thing to taste and Psalm 69, the way to succeed and the way to suck eggs, you know, which are just absolute <laughs> genius records. They're visceral. They're scary as hell. You could dance to it so well produced. And then after that, he kind of then for the last 30 years, all of his albums have been kind of the same overproduced way too many, too much going on in the mix. Every album has a pun 
as the title. <laughs> and, you know, some are good, some are bad, but nothing kind of hits back to the majesty of those early, early, you know, Warner Brothers records. And then also the tra- the tra- Wax Tracks era stuff. So man, I was now said Ministry at best has a couple of albums left and a couple of years left. But remember, he also back in the day when I lived in Chicago, I think it was Wednesday nights, he would spin country music at a really? little place called Crash Palace in Chicago and under the name Buck Satan. And he kept <laughs> threatening to put out a country record under the name Buck Satan. That's funny. And then he finally did, you know, he put out a country record, but it was definitely a ministry country record, mm-hmm. you know, it was very overproduced, you know, it was very much a metal band doing the country sound, but it's still a very enjoyable record, but I would love to hear him do a completely stripped down country record at the bridge school benefit back in the early nineties. He did a full acoustic concert that you can find on YouTube. And the one track that made the, the bridge school benefit CD mm-hmm was their cover of Friend of the Devil by the Grateful Dead. And it's acoustic. It's melodic as hell. He sings. And you forget, this guy can actually sing when he's not screaming and over-processing his vocals. He hits his Twilight era. I would love to see what he does with that kind of sound. So definitely listen to Friend of the Devil by the Ministry, and it'll shock you. So he's saying that he's he's planning his retirement. He's going to wrap up this stage of his creative career with ministry. And so now he's going back to this 1983 album. The song revenge was probably the most popular off that song. If you, off that album, if you listen to that record, it does, it absolutely sounds like from that era. I had very synth pop, um, Depeche Modi in a way. It's fine. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, Oh yeah, this sounds like high school to me. Uh, It doesn't sound that out of place, but there's nothing that really stands out as genius pop. Like he's certainly capable of doing things that strike a chord, but I was listening to the record and I thought, well, maybe the reason why he he didn't like it is because he was being forced into a sound that was commercial at the time. And he really thought, okay, I did it for the money. That was obvious. I was living in this horrible, you know, as he called it, a squat and I had nothing. I had no job, no money. Here comes Arista Records saying, we want you to do this record. Oh, by the way, we will tell you what to wear. We yeah. will tell you which tracks to do. We will tell you everything. And so it, it comes out of a place where he had no control over anything. So yeah. for an artist, that's a big, obviously a huge thing. When well, you don't have any control over anything, it, it makes whatever came out of that era where you had no control, you have sour grapes and you're just like, God, I hated that stuff. Yeah. But he puts in a very subtle fuck you to the label in one of his biggest hits. And I'm surprised nobody's really ever written about this, but, and I'm going to, before I say it, it's going to be a little controversial here. Okay. You have to look at what was happening in the era, you know, where it was the AIDS era. People were scared to death. LGBT were still a very disenfranchised community. And that was reflected in a lot of the songs. You know, there was a song called Instant Club Hit. I think that was by the Dead Milkmen, you know, which was all about all the, they call it the Euro trash, you know, new wave sound that they hated. And they then mock it. But then they basically have in the chorus, you're an art fag, 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 (laughs) you know, and so... And there was Homosexual, which was, you know, and 1-2-X-U, which were punk songs that were very anti-LGBT. Well... I, because it has such a polished sound in effigy, which is E F F I G Y, you know, the big single from that album, 
mm-hmm. the way Al sings the, the chorus, he's saying, I'm not an F a G because that was gay. You know, Oh, you're gay. It was a, you know, a very, you know, way to kind of say anyone was too polished, you know, so that's what the punkers and the metalheads would say about pop music, you know, all that's so gay, you know, back when that was a, you know, an epithet and not a set of compliment. You have to look at the era. I do not think that L has a anti LGBT bone in his body. You know, he seems like a really nice guy. Think about the era. And that song, and that's why I don't think he's tackling that song in this one of the ones he's going to pick for the remix. When you, when you really listen to it, the whole chorus is, I'm not an F-A-G, I'm not an F-A-G, among this big, huge pop synth line. So right. it's so really it, interesting. Yeah. It, and it will be interesting to hear Revenge, for those of you listening, just go on your streaming services, look for that 1983 album by Ministry. You'll see the, I think it's the first song, uh, Revenge. Yeah. Listen to that, and then- Flash forward a few albums in and listen to the sound of what Ministry is doing then and think yeah. about how he's going to update that song with a kind of what you would now say the standard Ministry sound. So I don't yeah. know if he's going to do that. He's, he's talking about it in this Yahoo music piece that, oh yeah, it's, it's, it's going to sound like Ministry, but it's a pop song. It's a pop song. We're going to do it yeah. like a, as a pop song. So I hope it has the same pop feel, but just up yeah. with the ministry sound. So we'll see how he sings. Cause he sings and very, you know, very industrial. So, and he's warming up to his legacy because when industrial accident, you know, the rise and fall of wax tracks records, that documentary came out, he toured briefly just playing the wax tracks era stuff like oh. Halloween is every day, stuff like that. And so he's realizing he has a lot of gold in that wax tracks era. Mm-hmm. So I could see him kind of revisiting this. When you think about it, his heaviest album, the Psalm 69 was also his only, from, as far as I know, top 10 record. Jesus built my hot rod was on it. Yeah. You know, new world order, which sampled George Bush. It's just a really heavy record. You know, I think my personal favorite, though, is The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste record, (laughs) just because Burning Inside, there's some just really amazing stuff. And so I'd love to see, even if Al retires ministry, I think he still has a long career ahead of him in terms of what he can do. Well, as we pivot to a band that seems to be wrapping up their career, they have they are on the precipice of releasing a massive super deluxe issue, or I don't know what we call a reissue. It's just this package of just everything probably in their vault and it's the who who's next i think i bought this album like four or five times already because they've done re- remasters and i think oh it's gonna sound even better but this yeah. one's paired with lifehouse and lifehouse was the concept record that was supposed to be the who's next project and it was this weird concept townsend has done demos for the entire idea it just never worked they had this idea that the audience would somehow influence the band. They tried to do this. It just didn't work. And so finally, they just abandoned the Lifehouse project, took the best songs off of that, and made Who's Next. Put that out there. It is a classic album. There is no question about this album from start to finish probably doesn't have a bad track. But to me, I look at this as just another money grab by the who, you know, how many times do you have to own this record? So it, it's going to come with live recordings. Mm-hmm. You've get the Pete Townsend songs for the aborted Lifehouse project. And I, I thought, didn't we already get this in 2000? There's yeah, a so blue way. Dump the vault. Yeah. yeah it is. It is that's a perfect, perfect way to put it up. Dump the vault, everybody. There's a Blu-ray audio disc that was uh, newly created with the Atmos 5.1 surround sound mixes of who's next. 
And there's 14 bonus tracks mixed by who else but Stephen Wilson, the that go-to dude is guy. Busy. Yeah, yeah I know. Guy he's just busy. Every classic rock artist goes to Stephen Wilson and says, can you make this great, better? Do something. Make it so we're like, it's almost like if you have the Stephen Wilson stamp on there, Yeah, they know that people it are going to yeah, yeah, it does. It sells, yeah. And then there's this graphic novel that's going to be included of Life House. So I think now there's a story that can be told. If you want to just, instead of parsing it together from the songs, you can, or piecing it together from the songs, you can actually read it in graphic novel form. So to me, this is just the who securing as much cash as they possibly can for the who enterprise and their descendants and just cementing their importance in music history. But I don't really feel like they have to prove anything anymore. I mean, it's just like they're already cemented in music history as one of the most important bands that come out of the sixties and seventies. Yeah. By the time they reached, you know, into the eighties and beyond, they were kind of like, kind of like we were talking about Prince. It was like, yeah, there's really not much gas left in the tank, but I love Pete Townsend's music. You know, I love his solo stuff. It's been very much a part of what I listen to today. And when I, what I listened to as a teenager, I don't really feel that this release is going to increase the stature of who's next. Maybe yeah. there's enough bloat in this that's going to satisfy people, but I honestly think that there's so much stuff in this that it's just going to accentuate the right choices that they made in putting out Who's Next because those are probably the best songs on. Yeah, I felt the same thing with the Tears for Fear Seeds of Love expanded mm-hmm. box set, which featured a Stephen Wilson mix. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. The album is perfect. Yep. And everything that they put in as bonus tracks absolutely sucks. Yep. You know, it's like, yep. why yep. did they put this crap out? You see how they off key they sang when they weren't mixed properly. And so it's kind of like, yeah, sometimes the vault needs to stay closed. Yeah. I have to admit, though, that that the Stephen Wilson mix, which you can only listen to on Blu-ray, which if you yeah. have a decent sound system coming out of your television, you can appreciate it. But it does sound pretty good. He does yeah. accentuate. I mean, you, if you've listened to that record over and over, you have, I have, and I'm sure lots of Planet LP listeners have, too. You have it imprinted in your mind. You know exactly how that mix sounds. And then when you put on the Stephen Wilson one, he does accentuate certain things that weren't necessarily brought out in the original mix. So it's it's a bit of a treat. It's not like anything revolutionary. And so we'll see what he does with who's next. Yeah. Do you know what the who needs to sell this product? It What's needs that? you, you, Ted. Imagine if you produced with your amazing voice a late night infomercial mm-hmm. because everything is, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Like you would have three bumpers there. You got the Blu-ray, you got the book, you get the bonus right. tracks, you know, and if you act now, you also get the book. Oh my I, God. Would throw, I, I would throw I would throw in that. a juicer as well. And yeah. the juice is everything from carrots. Look at that. Fresh carrot juice. Because yeah, <laughs> isn't that the cover of Who's Next? Is that where they're all peeing on the wall? Yeah, but you know the, the funny thing about that is that that's not even pee. That they saw that little obelisk there and they're all like, uh, guys, why don't you go pee on the wall? And none of them could make the magic happen. So they just took bottles of water and sort of oh, chucked it on funny. the wall. And then See, said, that's, now that's your news pants. you can use. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's some who news that you can use. There so let's, you go. Move on. let's move on with it. Down the list, we've got some, some new stuff, actual new stuff coming out here. So why don't we try to do two minutes per track or album, if that. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, this is here we go. We're in the we're in the gumball machine. Okay, the first one up, the Ballad of Darren, Blur, brand new album, first one since the Magic Whip in 2015. 
To me, this is magnificent. This is also the reason some critics are having problem with it, because it sounds like classic Blur. To me, it's the best end-to-end album experience since Park Life. You know, all their albums have a couple of really good singles, you know, but this one really plays nicely end-to-end. The deluxe version I got on CD has a couple of bonus tracks, which I think are essential to the mix. You can get that on Amazon or at your local record stores. Highly recommend it. But this has been a big year for the guys in Blur. Graham Coxon has his Wave album that we talked about, I think, back in February. And then in May, there was the new Gorillaz record. The funny one about this, The Ballad of Darren, when you look back at the early Blur records, it was all these snot-nosed kids making fun of suburban adults with responsibilities and big ah. houses and all that. Guess and how now they are now. Yeah. yeah. And they're very aware of it. Oh my contradictions. God. And so I highly recommend the Ballad of Darren. It just plays like it reminds you of how just when everything is working in that band, you know, in terms of the production, the performance, the lyrics and everything, when they when they're really hitting on all cylinders, Blur is just unparalleled. You they're know, in the mid fifties now, right? Mid fifties. Exactly. Yeah, just yeah. like we are. And so yeah, yeah. Pulp also reunited for the festival circuit, but we're not getting a new Pulp record that we know of. You know, having a new record, especially one as good as this, you know, sets Blur up for a big run of stadium shows and festivals in Europe. And I think they're, I think they might be playing over here as well. Okay, Uh, excellent. We're headed to the two minute mark. So let's see if we can start with the next one. Let's go. (laughs) Another band of that era. So it feels like when I looked at my new releases as they were coming in from Amazon this week, then Mm -hmm. it feels like 92 all over again, because James has another great new record out called Be Opened by the Wonderful. They're the latest band to release an orchestral version of their hits. You know, like, God, Metallica's done this. Right, Um, right. You know, Echo and the Bunnymen, A Flock of Seagulls has put out two orchestral albums. You know, so at worst, these are poorly produced cash grab contract fillers. Easy to do. There's plenty of orchestras out there that are willing to do it. You know, and then you can just kind of get out of your record contract saying, okay, great. We fulfilled our contract. Goodbye. (laughs) You know, but, you know, James looked at this like a lot of artists like Nirvana with their MTV Unplugged as a chance to completely do a victory lap around their catalog, but also completely reimagine it. And so it's a very mellow affair. There's no orchestral, like over the top swells that make it very overly dramatic. You know, it's a very threadbare, low key, low vibe affair, but it's just a celebration of how good those songs were. And Tim Booth, his voice is still as majestic as ever. So they have really, even though they broke up for a couple of years in the early 2000s, This band has never gone away from relevance. Every album they come out with is just absolutely fabulous. Hmm. Some better than others, but it's just great to see, you know, 41 years into their career, James is still hitting on all cylinders. That's pretty impressive. That is impressive. Now we have a kind of a, well, I wouldn't say starting their career, but definitely at a point where they are maturing and that's Greta Van Fleet. Their latest album is called Starcatcher. It recently was released. I was listening to it for a couple of days in a row, and I looked up the wiki on it and thought this was an accurate review by Rolling Stone's David Brown. He said that while there are a few new elements to the album, it is simply impossible to listen to Starcatcher and, as with all of their previous work, not think you've stumbled upon a vault of outtakes from Led Zeppelin and some of their peers. So that's that. Yeah. If, if you like the Led Zeppelin sound, you're going to love Greta Van Fleet, that's for sure. 
And the thing is, this actually dovetails back to what we were just talking about with mm-hmm. both Prince and some of the and the and the ministry stuff. You figure Zeppelin landed on a very marketable sound that still resonates to people all these years later. But since Page and Plant have abandoned it with their solo stuff, why not somebody step in and keep delivering what the people want? You mm-hmm. know, and so I think that's exactly what Greta Van Fleet does. They're young, they've got energy, they play well at festivals and headlining appearances. And so I'm like, God bless them. Go cash that check in. Exactly. And now we're going to go back to someone that's at the tail end of their career, but has a brand new album out. Yeah. And just because it's tail end doesn't mean that they're running on fumes. We just saw that with that boffo Ian Hunter record that came out a couple months ago. And so now Nils Lofgren has just released Mountains. You know, he's been putting out lots of solo records while still touring with the E Street Band. He's a founding member of Crazy Horse. This new album features Neil Young, Ringo Starr, and the late David Crosby. And it's not on Spotify, which is really Hmm. interesting. You could hear it on YouTube. I liked what I heard on YouTube so much. I bought the CD. It comes sometime this week. Ultimate Classic Rock gave it a really glowing review. And, you know, it pairs nicely in this trend we've seen with Ian Hunter, Eddie Vedder, Iggy Pop, Ozzy Osbourne, putting out these star-studded collaboration records that just are fantastic. And when you listen to a song like Dream Killer, oh my God, when the chorus comes in, it's like, I think it's four or five tracks into the record. It's like, oh my God, it's absolutely magnificent. So Hmm. I highly recommend, you know, because Nils has been the side guy for all these years. Yeah. You know, really stepping into the spotlight with some of his friends, Chris Shefflett from the Foo Fighters. He has his solo record coming out later this year. He's been up putting out a bunch of, you know, steady releases as well. It's great to see some of these sidemen step into the spotlight and show they've got the chops. So highly recommend Nils Lofgren Mountains. Now, here's one that you sent to me recently. I don't know anything about her beyond what was sent in their publicist's email. But I listened to it once and I really enjoyed it. And then I listened to it again and I enjoyed it more. And then I listened to it a third time. I thought, it's pretty good. Who is she? And as I sometimes say, and what does she want? We're blessed. We get some advanced releases from publicists. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, one comes that you put in in your CD player that you're like, holy crap, this is going to change my life. And it's one of those things where the Mikhail Davis record comes out in early August. It's called And Southern Star. And Michaela Davis, just to make sure I'm clear on that. Right. It's right. on Kill Rock Stars. Right away when I saw the label, I pay attention because Sleater Kenny, The Gossip, Decemberists, Elliot Smith. I mean, they have put out some legendary records over the era. So I'm expecting it's going to be harsh, you know, and a little bit edgy, you know, hmm. but sure enough, the first notes that come out of this record are just absolutely beautiful. And as you and I have been talking all year about production quality, right? it's right. one thing to have the sound. It's another thing to really produce it well. And oh my God, this album is a celebration of why I got a good stereo. It just sounds absolutely exquisite. It's in the Americana, yeah, the Americana yeah. songbook. And that can either be really boring or really beautiful. And this is definitely really beautiful. It's haunting in places. It's lovely in places. It's poignant. And then the textures, it's a really good band album. She's been basically assembling this family of musicians since childhood, and everybody contributed to the record. And so I love when you open up the sleeve and the booklet, you know, there's no solo pictures of her. She's with the band, and it's very clearly a band record. And I just think it's absolutely exquisite. So if you like Americana, folk, 
kind of softer Brandy Carlisle's type rock, you're going to really love Michaela Davis. And Michaela Davis's publicist said it was okay for us to play a track, even a portion of the track, yeah. to give our Planet LP listeners a sample. So should we pick Cinderella as the one? The, the very the first track? Yeah, yeah, let's the do open. that. Oh, okay. it's beautiful. Take a listen, so he- see what you think. heard that i got a little bit of a cheryl crow vibe a little grittier at times but i just love the fact that a harp is put into a an americana country-ish kind of a rock sound in a way and she has a really pleasant voice it's very ethereal at times on the record too so that's one to put on your list folks when it comes out michaela davis and the, the album title is and southern star so as we pivot to the next band I know nothing about them. Okay, these two are going to go back to the 80s, you know, they're a hot tub time machine and kind mm-hmm. of mine all that early post-punk sound that to me is just so captivating. If you like stuff like Primal Scream, Joy Division, New Order, Lush, The Chameleons, you know, even 90s stuff like Hum and Smashing Pumpkins, you're going to really love Waves Crashing. Soul. Waves Crashing, <laughs> yeah. From Olympia, Washington, you know, so Olympia has given us, you know, Bikini Kill, The Gossip, Sleater Kinney, some of those bands we were just talking about and Kill Rock Stars. Mm-hmm. But oh my God, yeah, it's really well produced. They've got a ton of stuff that you can get dirt cheap on Bandcamp. What I did was I just bought everything on Bandcamp, downloaded the high res files and created one full length CD that has their one off singles and then their three EPs, The Viewing, which is the latest, High Low and Sea of Wires. And oh my God, it is just really beautiful stuff. Hits that nerve. I think you were talking on the last podcast about how we kind of gravitate to sounds that we listened to that formed our being in childhood. Yes. Yeah. When we were like roughly between 12 and 25, this is sort of the sweet spot of being open to new music. But 
John Young mentioned that he grew up in a certain era of the 70s, was framed by AM radio. And then as he got to be an adult, he wanted to sort of pay homage to and play that kind of music. But yes, continue. Yeah. So Waves Crashing really nails this, you know, especially when you look at those kind of visceral guitar parts, especially with the chameleons and hum, even some of the best early Smashing Pumpkin stuff. Like mm-hmm. that's what resonates throughout all this, you know? So I really love the entire waves crashing catalog. You can get on Bandcamp, And then there's another one. Um, it's a band out of Philadelphia called Corinne. And this one kind of reminds me in a way of MGMT. Remember how amazing Oracular Spectacular was their debut with like time for, to pretend and kids yes, and all that kind yes. of stuff. Right, 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 right. I mean, I'm saying, right, but there's probably people out there like, who, what, where? Oh my God. Yeah. MGMT's first record, the one that everyone loves, the one that they now distance themselves, kind of like Al does with, Al Jorgensen does with Sympathy, you know, because it had so many hits. But Corinne is like that, where they kind of mine that same new wave nostalgia, emo, punk, they call it with a modern pop sensibility. But yet the two people, Morgie Ramone and Trey Fry, seemed to be very fame averse. Like I really struggled to find any information about this band. The reason I got into Tear, you know, their their latest, I think it's the third record by Corinne, K-O-R-I-N-E for the listeners, because Brett um, Helm from the Life of This Planet blog, he's, you know, a musician on his own, but he's also a really good influencer in terms of really kind of dictating a lot of the stuff that I love because we're kind of kindred spirits there. And so he said it was one of his top 10 records of the year so far. And that caused me to pay attention to it. And it is a beautiful record, you know, 36 or so minutes of just hitting that sweet spot of the new order and the post-punk stuff that I love so much. So I highly recommend Tear by Corinne and anything you can get your hands on by Waves Crashing. All right. And then we move on to Angels and Queens, the new album by Gabriel's. Now, here's something fascinating. So I had first heard about Gabriel's through enemy.com, where I still go to kind of find out what's happening in Europe. And so to say that there is this Detroit soul style record coming out of Europe, but with an American singer, I'm like, oh, that sounds fascinating. Elton John calls Angels and Queens one of the most seminal records I've heard in the last 10 years. Really? And so singer Jacob Lusk, turns out he was from American Idol and the name didn't really recall anything. So I'm thinking, okay, he's on from American Idol, the ABC years that I don't pay much attention to. Turns out he was on the season of American Idol, which was season 10. That also gave us people like Haley Reinhardt and Casey Abrams. That was a great, great year, including P.S. Toscano, who was supposed to have been the next Madonna. But then suddenly it didn't happen for her, even though she did put out a record last fall. After almost a decade, she finally got her chance. And so now has Jacob Lusk. So Jacob Lusk and Gabriel's, you know, the new album, Angels and Queens, it came out as an EP with the first half last year, got a lot of critical fanfare and lots of reward recognition. And now the full length is out. I highly recommend getting the deluxe edition on CD because that has a lot of bonus tracks. And it really is soul and R&B filtered through what I call some of the tracks sound like they're from the 1940s. Hmm. Some of the tracks sound like they're from the 2040s, you know, futuristic, retro, 60s, everything in between. They're clearly untethered to any pressure for a radio hit or a polished single. 
You know, you're not going to get a Motown track from this band, but everything is fascinating and it demands and rewards attention. I'm going to put together a soundtrack, a soundtrack. I'm going to put together. Well, I guess it is in a way a playlist based on some yeah. of the some of these artists and the titles that you're recommending because I think this is going to make a, a really fascinating one. As we wrap up the podcast episode, we want to talk about the elephant in the room. Well, she's not really an elephant. She's a plastic doll, and she has a huge movie that has just come out as we're recording this this weekend, and there's a soundtrack to go with it. And if you haven't guessed yet, it's Barbie. Barbie has a soundtrack with a lot of A-listers on there, and Keith, you got the full soundtrack. I only got partial when I was going on the stream. I think I've only listened to four songs, so I haven't heard the whole thing, but I believe you have. So what's your take on this? Well, it's interesting because I bought the CD, but mm-hmm. even then, that's not the full experience. There was actually a couple of tracks that are now, I don't even know where to find them, you know, but I read about them on Wikipedia. They're on some of the streamers. So some of the tracks didn't make the CD, including a really funny Matchbox 20 cover by Ryan Gosling as Ken, you know, <laughs> because the soundtrack actually also does have a big anthem that he sings as Ken which is, I think, I'm just Ken, but it features Slash, Wolfgang Van Halen, and new Foo Fighter drummer Josh Fries, you know, who's also been a session musician for years and years and years with Devo and everyone else. And so it's interesting. This is definitely, it could have been a spectacular record. You know, the Birds of Prey soundtrack that was Mm -hmm. also from a Margot Robbie movie is just banger after banger after banger where everybody brings their A-list. Here, some people bring their A-list and some people completely phone it in. And let's talk about the good stuff first. Billie Eilish. Absolutely. You could tell that's the tear-jerking moment of the movie. You know, she sings about Why Was I Made? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's hard to listen to that song without just bawling. Because I think what she does is she translates Why Was Barbie Made to Why Was I Born? the human experience. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so between that and Dua Lipa, another reliable banger from her, Ava Max ends that with a really, really, really great pop song. But in between, there's a lot of filler. The Lizzo track to me absolutely sucks. You know, that kind of kicks things off almost a thought more than a song. And then to me, the worst one on the album is one of my favorite artists of all time, which is Charlie XCX. Her true romance album is one of my top 10 all-time records. And here, she just phones it in with a mashup of interpolations. Have we ever talked about interpolations and that trend on the podcast? No, I don't think so. So instead of being a cover where the songwriters get royalties from the publishing an interpolation basically dips their pen in the ink just enough where you could hear elements of the songs, but you get the permission to use it by a licensing agreement. And so here she kind of interpolates two that are credited in the album credits, Mickey by Tony Basil and Cobra style by the teddy bears that was actually made more famous by Robin, but then also backstabber by Kesha. You know, Hmm. and so essentially it just sounds like she didn't have time to come up with an album or a song idea. She wanted to be on the track. And so she just literally covers these three songs and just (laughs) changes the lyrics all to Barbie. Oh, Barbie, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. It's like horrible. 
Oh, it is man. just like a ridiculously bad, bad, bad song, you know, and she's normally famous ex Charlie XCX for giving away her best work to other artists like mm-hmm. Iggy Azalea, Icona Pop, Blondie. She even gave an amazing song to the Angry Birds soundtrack and that she just put such a turd on this record. It's just kind of a bummer. It really is considering this was this is going to be one of the big films of the summer. And then they say, we want you to be on the soundtrack. And then you saw like. I don't know. I'm going to put some Tony Basil, Kesha, um, whatever on there. And then just, just, as you said, phone it in. And it's too bad because she could have been part of a soundtrack that was stellar versus subpar with some gems thrown in there. And the thing is, it's ridiculous that Barbie Girl by Aqua, the fact that that song isn't on the soundtrack, either original or a cover, is just a shame. It's reduced to just a brief sample in a really third-rate Nicki Minaj Ice Spice song. Yeah. You know, then they just literally just staple the sample onto the very end. And so Mark Ronson, who is a gifted, gifted producer, produced this whole project. And so, yeah, there are some really good bangers that make it a worthwhile investment of your time to find them. But you could boil it down to an EP versus an album. And the digital version also has a Brandy Carlisle cover of the Indigo Girls, you know, closer mm-hmm. to fine, which is lovely, but completely inessential. And then thankfully, there actually is another track that's only on digital that, thank God, was left off the CD because it's just got to be one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my life. What is that one? It's called Barbie Dreams by 5050 featuring Kali. And oh my God. Yeah. How many eyes are going to Kali? Is that three or four? I think it's oh three. Oh God. Kali! Like there are some ridiculously saccharine Barbie cartoons that are on the streaming platforms that mm-hmm. my daughter loves. Well, she did love them, but they're just so saccharine and white as can be. There is not a character of color to be seen in these things. And it's all about Barbie's fabulous life in Malibu. This is what that song, Barbie Dreams, seems to be lifted from. Oh my God, it's just revolting. So thank God they left it off the CD. I may have had to use the CD as a coaster, but there's some other good stuff in there. You know, so I would like listen to the Ava Max, the Billie Eilish and the Dua Lipa songs are great. I think Tame Impala and Gail, you know, who has that really awesome ABCDEFU song. Right. Yeah, that your I daughter think the Gail song is a cover of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but it's completely forgettable. Gotcha. You know, okay. so so Barbie's a hit and miss. Even though the the film's going to be a hit, the, yeah. the soundtrack eh, maybe people were like, "No, you're wrong, Keith. You're wrong, Ted. This is the best soundtrack ever." I think you're the movie is going to be a big hit. I can't wait to see the movie. And also, I think the people behind the marketing of the movie need to win all the awards. Like to me, it's the best marketed movie in the history of movies. When you look at the PR, the social mm-hmm. media. You know, the advertising, everything they've done to build momentum for this over the course of the entire year, it should just win every award in marketing. They still do marketing awards. I'm sure they do. I think they do. So I hope they win everything. So that kind of wraps up. So I'll be we'll be back in August. We're going to talk about the hives are coming back with a new record, Public Image Limited. So we're going to have some good stuff in August. Absolutely. And thanks, Keith, who comes on this podcast with his great work, providing us not only with new music recommendations, but insightful conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. And that's a wrap for now. I'll be back soon with more music talk right here on the Planet LP Podcast. So long. So long.